I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Danny. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being here. Thanks for um, having me. I'm, <laughs> I'm your guest, right? This is the dynamic of the show. Well, show we're in my house, own. so in that's a sense, true, you are true. my guest. Yes, yeah, very true. You made this cup of tea. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'd also like to welcome Katie. Nice to have you back, Katie. Katie's been in America doing podcasting there, all these behind-the-scenes podcast work. Trying to break us in America hasn't worked. She's come back. Uh, are we big in America? You're big in Japan. Well, that's the traditional place to be big. And I hope they enjoy our review of Isle of Dogs later, um, which is set there. Um, anyway, I've been browsing Twitter, as I am once to do, and I stumbled upon this thread by Carl Buchanan, who wrote a piece at Vulture about uh, how female characters are described in screenplays. Um, and they, they have 50 different screenplays, and he did a thread of some of the sort of highlights of this. And I wanted to read a little bit of the way that Tarantino introduces the character Jungle Julia Lukai from the movie Death Proof. Do you remember? Played by Sidney Poitier. Oh, a, a, a relative of... Yeah, it's his daughter, but she's also called Sydney. Also called Sydney. spelled differently. Oh, I didn't realize. I did, had completely forgotten about that. But I do remember the... I don't remember the movie super well, but I do remember the shot, what, like, her shot, because it was in the trailer when she sort of walks into the room and she's like, you know, it's like a sort of sexy shot. So how would you imagine Tarantino would introduce... What sort of elements are you expecting to be in this? Probably list her top favourite novels. <laughs> um... <laughs> Who her family? He talked talk a lot about her mental, her mental attributes. Yeah, didn't he? Didn't <laughs> yeah. he? Yeah. Let's let's find out. Let's see. This is how he. This is how he does it. A tall, maybe six foot, Amazonian mulatto goddess walks down her hallway, dressed in a baby tee and panties that her big ass (open brackets) a good thing (close brackets) spill out of, and her long legs grow out of. Her big bare feet slap on the hardwood floor. She moves to the cool rockabilly beat as she paces like a tiger putting on her clothes. Outside her apartment, she hears a honk honk. She sticks her long mane of silky black curly hair, her giraffish neck, and her broad shoulders out of the window and yells to a car below. This sexy chick is Austin, Texas local celebrity Jungle Julia Lukai, the most popular disc jockey of the coolest rock radio station in a music town. Wow, <laughs> I like this. Like she gets dressed like a tiger. Dressed well, like a tiger. there's a there's an element that's recurring in in this. Uh, Amaz- jung- she's Jungle Julia. She's all, Jungle, all jungle Julia. Animals. <laughs> and well, it's, it's not really jungle, right? Giraffes not really the jungle. It's just African death. African I think that's the. Oh dear. I think that's probably the element oh, no. that's uh, 
let's join this all together. Yeah, but, just remarkable. But, to play Devil's Avocado, how did you describe, like, you know, Jules in uh, Pulp Fiction or Vincent? Is it similarly uh, sexualized with loads of animal <laughs> descriptions? Are you saying, like, is he more racist or sexist? No, does he just describe everybody really weirdly? Oh, so... I see, yeah. I actually actually did read the Pulp Fiction script. I think I had a copy of it back Vincent, in the day. Vincent, his long maid. <laughs> <laughs> As he sits next to Jules. His strong his, thighs his strong as, as he thighs. powerfully sits down. In a car. <laughs> In a car. <laughs> his bulging arms like a rhino. <laughs> as he adjusts the dial of the radio. <laughs> yeah, I think that is how it went. So, so fair play to him. He sees everyone as a sort of powerful, sexy African animal. I think that's how he describes all of his characters and all his screenplays. Oh dear. Yeah, I'm look- really looking forward to his novels once he moves away from filmmaking and starts, <laughs> starts releasing novels. Uh, to touch on a less gross description, there was a nice little quote here from how Norma Desmond is introduced from Sunset Boulevard. Norma Desmond stands down the corridor next to a doorway from which emerges a flickering light. She is a little woman. There is a curious style, a great sense of high voltage about her. Nice. Pretty good. Pretty good and very correct to you how she is in the film. So that's rather nice more pleasant wholesome way to conclude this little introductory discussion so danny hello why don't you take us through what this podcast is all about i just happen to have a perfect little synopsis of the podcast premise right here if you've not listened before film chance podcast about sam foster and dame moran two bumbling barbers at a harlem barber shop knowing full well that cutting hair is not their calling their boss friend and mentor katie rogers tells them to maybe try out for the police academy they refuse at first, but then Katie threatens to fire them. So, anyway, crazy enough, it works out for the two and they accept it onto the New York City police force. Things are going great until tragedy strikes in the form of Katie's mysterious death. As fully qualified cops, they decide to investigate the incident, which they believe to be murder. Sam and Danny find out through the streets that a crooked property developer called Demetrius might have something to do with their friend's death. And they proceed to attempt to dig up as much dirt on him as possible... But this proves to be difficult because they've got to deal with a nutty sergeant, a moody detective, and a bunch of unwilling street hoods to get the information they need. Though there aren't any particular clues to be found, strange happenings keep on occurring, and the case blows wide open when they discover that Demetrius' company is more interested in finding oil than property, is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the classic film, Who's the Man? <laughs> That's a good title. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran and joining me is a man who can give you a nice short back and sides and also investigate uh, murder. Sam Foster, Hello. that's you. That's me and I can do both those things. It's another big review week on Film Chat. I'll run down to the latest releases. We'll take you on a journey across space and time from a future Japan that's also in an alternate universe where some people really hate dogs. That's for Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. To 1990s Paris to check in on a group of radical HIV AIDS activists for Robin Campillo's 120 Beats Per Minute. Stopping off on the way on the west coast of the US in the present day for the fantastical indie drama I Killed Giants. If we have time, we will also be making stops in contemporary suburban Connecticut, 1970s Minnesota, and 1920s New Jersey. What fun. Plus, we will be celebrating Sheila Berth's beautiful synthesis of his dual careers as a film actor and weird art project man, and scratching our chins over Take Away Titi's upcoming project, in which the director of Thor Ragnarok will apparently play a fantasy version of Hitler. All that should leave just enough time for me to record an audio will, 
in which I will leave all my worldly possessions to whoever can solve a series of cunning challenges based on games and films I like, as well as my personal romantic and professional history and my childhood. So if you want all my stuff, <laughs> like my, you know, the stuff I own, like my sort of games and books and all that kind of thing, you've got to know where I was when I first saw Ready Player One and where I was uh, when I first kissed a girl and whether I regret uh, getting the job that I have and how much I like uh, gin and whiskey. Which one's better? <laughs> all these kinds of little facts. Little facts about me, and I'll be establishing a giant library with the, all the facts about myself, and you could go and visit there alongside hordes of other gamers uh, to try to figure figure me out. And Danny will be there. <laughs> he'll be there as a sort of robot butler, and he'll sort of direct you to the relevant parts of the library, just to just see just to sort of delve into my memories. <laughs> just do the whole movie. <laughs> Uh, and also, <laughs> in my will, I will leave stipulation for a giant company to be established who will also attempt to solve the challenges, but they will not do good things once they own my bureau and my <laughs> bed and, and the giant poster of Brooklyn Bridge and all that kind of thing. Coming up later in the podcast. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Boo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long, we've got films up to your gills with films, 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 Film chat has begun. Danny took to Twitter this week on the Film Chat accounts to ask, Isle of Dogs related question, have any other directors made their worst film after their best one? This received precisely one reply <laughs> from our friend Dougal McQueen, who said, <laughs> yes, where's Anderson when he made Grand Budapest Hotel? It's kind of missing the point of my question slightly. Well, is well, he? Well, he just wants to give his own Wes Anderson hot take. Yeah. I guess you and him disagree on uh, the merits of Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, I think it's his best film. Dougal thinks it's his worst. Have you discussed this with him before? Yeah, but it usually just descends into a fist fight and uh, yeah. blows, blows are exchanged. That's part of your friendship, physically. isn't it? Wrestling. Occasional wrestling. You guys wrestle a bit, but it's we don't wrestle. No, but we've got a whole like woman in love sort of Alan Bates sort of a read thing going on. You and Dougal, yeah, yeah, and a real homosexual tinge to our friendship. Well, I noticed that he had that giant roaring fireplace installed <laughs> in his uh, in his flat, and I think he was hoping was hoping for wrestling. a little naked <laughs> And sadly, it's not come to pass yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, you might have you. You've been around there a lot. But he's moved. Dan lives there now. He's moved. Yeah. I don't want. I don't want. I don't want nakedly wrestle with Dan. I mean, he's a good-looking guy, but I just don't. Just have the urge to wrestle them like I do. Uh... Can't help but notice, Danny, that since like you started dating somebody, you're not going to that place in Nottingham alone and spending loads of time there as much. Nah. To get Nate to get your naked wrestle on. Yep. Just uh, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> we weren't able to really discuss the answer to this question very much because we didn't get enough. 
enough responses to it. Do you have any answers to your own question, Danny? No, I was trying to think. Like, there's obviously directors who are really patchy. I mean, you could say something like, you know, Richard Kelly, who made like Southland Tales of the Donnie Darko, because he made three films. So yeah, it's not as not there's, as there's rich. There's people who have like you know had really disappointing sophomore efforts, like Sanchez. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Lost in Translation was considered to be really good, and then uh, Marie Antoinette got very bad reviews. Yes, I don't know. We have to throw this one open. This uh, is why I wanted, you know, more suggestions. Danny, I think in editing you might have to cut down a lot of this, you know, silence. I don't want to tell you to do your job, <laughs> but I think large periods of silence is not going to be great. Superhero films announced, casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. Taika Waititi is riding high off the success of Thor Ragnarok. What do you do? You've had a massive hit. You can Use do anything you want. to make your craziest sounding movie, which would never get greenlit otherwise. And uh, that sounds like what he's doing here in his latest film, which is going to be called Jojo. And has recently attached Scarlett Johansson to star in it. Scar Joe in Jojo. Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit, beg your pardon. Not really sure what the rabbit refers to. If there's well, a rabbit in the movie. Who's Jojo? Who's What's Jojo? going on? What's going on? Don't have all the details here. <laughs> the premise is that it's going to be set in Germany during World War Two, And it's about a young lad in Hitler's army discovering that his mother, who will be the Scarlett Johansson role, is hiding a young Jewish girl in their home. And where Titi is also on board to act as a fantasy version of Adolf Hitler. He said it won't be complimentary to one of history's worst monsters. I, do you think that it's maybe a problem if you have to say that before you embark on your next project? <laughs> Listen, I'm playing Hitler, but it's going to be I just a make very unrose tinted I want to make it clear from the outset that this film will not be a hagiography of Hitler. <laughs> it will not be a pro-Hitler movie. <laughs> it will take a, a stance against Hitler in the film. Yeah, it's an odd one. I mean, maybe it'll be good. There's been, there's you know, successful World War Two comedies, like The Great Dictator, To Be or Not To Be. Do you think it's going to be a- the best hotels, like a sort of Holocaust comedy? Well, it's sort of like a comedy about the the chasm of the movie is like the time when like the Nazis moved in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know, but his his comedy style is so either like very twee or very irreverent. So it'd be interesting to see him tackle something so serious. Yeah, maybe, do you think it will just be purely, it can't be purely irreverent, right? There's no there's no possible way. Young boy, World War II, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and stuff. You can't just make your, like, cute twee film. Can't be like Eagle versus Shark versus Hitler. Yeah. Like, it's not going to work. It's a bit like, you know, he's made, he made a series of films that um, all sort of fit approximately within the same bracket with, like, greater and lesser degrees of sentimentalness. And then he made this massive blockbuster. And now he's probably like, well, maybe I'll try to add another string to my bow. I wonder if I can tread this tonal tightrope of making this Hitler movie. Yeah, absolutely. That was a good to have a podcast recommendation. The film comment podcast is really good. And they did an episode, I think literally called Carte Blanche Films, which this probably falls under where it's like a director who's had a massive hit and then makes their passion project. And the results are rarely middling. They're always either a complete success or like a total disaster that possibly cripples their career forever. Yeah. And this could be one of those things. So, you know, there's nothing worse than an average movie. Exactly. 
Exactly. So why not? Uh, so let's Hansen. let's applaud Taika for, for yeah, literally. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and that's our take on that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. We have another wacky sounding film on the horizon. It's an exciting time to look forward to weird movies. Sheila Burf, who has been up to two things in his career. One of them is acting, the other is doing uh, very weird things in the name of art um which are all they're all sort of like charming misfires i find like even as more misguided projects there's something you know uh vaguely endearing about them i think a part of his art career is doing these installations in museums and part of it is like drink driving and getting arrested <laughs> and then you know like i don't know throwing bottles at people or whatever it is he gets up to just seems like an interesting guy just saying <laughs> it just seems like a fascinating man i think he's like a better james franco the live stream of him watching his own movies nonstop was pretty great. That's fucking art, isn't it? That was art. That's art. I mean, that was art. With the, there was with... a video because you know it's like just do it viral thing. Yeah. Like James Franco did like a sort of parody version of it, but about like a guy who like needs to take a shit called like Just Poo It. And I'm like, of all the people to be mocking Charlotte of like. That's not right. All the sort of shitty films you make and like random art shit, no one gives a fuck about and like your poetry. Yeah. What are you? That what also doesn't you, sound funny. I mean, Just Do It is obviously done in a knowing way isn't it yeah so yeah have you seen that Shia LaBeouf thing with uh, this sort of musical being put on about him and then he's in the audience yeah, at the end the sort of uh, the, the sort gay of, choir of... the gay choir and the cannibal yeah. Shia LaBeouf and stuff you know he's got a sense of humour about himself <laughs> That's the one, yeah. He's just clapping at the end. Yeah, he does the sort of Citizen Kane, Orson Welles clap at the end, exactly. Um, So the latest project just seems like a very shy thing in that there's an obvious humorous angle to it, which I'm sure he is aware of, but it's also an intense psycho bit of, you know, personal therapy, which also seems to be a running strain through his projects. It's going to be called Honey Boy. It's a family drama. Shia LaBeouf is making this film about himself as a young man and he'll be played by lucas hedges who looks nothing like him <laughs> looks nothing like him they don't look alike he's at good, all good actor though but he's a good actor he's very good he's very good in ladybird he's very good in manchester by the sea seems to be kind of a hot young property mr hedges um and uh it's going to be about because shellabuff was a child star he was in even stevens and this will follow him is his child's career is taking off and he attempts to mend his relationship with his law-breaking, alcohol-abusing father, who will be played by Sheila Berth himself. And it's going to be directed by someone called Alma Harrell, who is a music video director. Um, I'm not sure if she's made movies I before. Rob, I think she's also a documentarian. So oh, I see. A documentarian uh, also. Uh, fiction film debut. Yeah, interesting one. I also looked up that there's Lucas Hedges is 21 and Sheila Berth is 31. So, <laughs> so <laughs> he, did he have a very young dad? Or yeah, was will... dad 10 when he gave... 
I can't can believe see. he's only 31. I guess that's what happened when you're a child star. Yeah, exactly. He's been around for so it's long. It's insane how young he is. He's the same age as my brother. I would love it if um, the film involves a lot of like accurate scene-by-scene reconstructions of Charlotte's movies with Lucas Hedges in them. Like, that would be amazing. Lucas Hedges in Transformers. <laughs> Lucas Hedges in Constantine. What, there's like flash Lucas forwards? Lucas Hedges in iRobot. Yeah. Yeah, but like what period... Because 10 years ago for Shire, he was in Transformers. Well, I guess Hedges will be playing younger, right? Right. I assume. Because <laughs> playing... he, he's playing younger in um, Lady Bird. He's playing he 16 or something. Students? Yeah, he's like 11 in that or something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's Hedges is not 11. I mean, he looks young, but he's not 11, is I he? there's a long scene just sat on the set of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystals. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah. I mean, in Shire's defense, like, you know, people writing stories drawn from their own life is pretty much most scripts that get made i mean if you just change the names and said it was you know it was based on his experiences it wouldn't it would be a bit nondescript as a thing you know like doesn't this seem it seems a bit like something that you would do in improv class where but he's just decided to do a whole movie of it yeah the only thing that we met would have made it better is if charlotte's actual dad was playing charlotte buff <laughs> and charlotte was playing his dad that would have been really good yeah just, you know just make it a bit more meta. Shia LaBeouf's dad plays the family dog. <laughs> <laughs> Who can talk? The dog is playing his mom. <laughs> the mom is playing the cat. <laughs> Who knows what's going on? <laughs> what's, what's going on? I, do, I think that the director of this movie has an unenviable task in some ways. I would not want to direct a movie star playing their own father in a film about their own life. Which they've written. Which they've written. <laughs> like, what are you supposed to say on the set? Like, oh no, don't do it like that. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah well maybe that's why he's got a documentarian on board he's just like let shire go we'll capture it and then shoot in a sort of quasi documentary style that's probably exactly it you're a documentarian that means this is real and you don't interfere (laughs) you got a documentarian's obligation to not interfere with real life and they're like during the they're filming it, it's gonna end up with Shia LaBeouf brutally beating <laughs> drink, drinking heavily on set, brutally beating Lucas Hedges, and uh, no one will no one will stop it because it's too real. They'll it's just cut real. it, cut it and print it, and it'll be the film of the year. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah, that's becoming our catchphrase as well, just saying can't wait. <laughs> any new story about any film. <laughs> Regardless of what we think it will be. Shit all good. Just can't wait. Just can't wait to see it. I'd love to anticipate things. Love to be excited. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Speaking of carte blanche films, which are either great movies or epic misfires after someone made a successful movie, Wes Anderson's new film, this is Isle of Dogs. It is a stop motion animated film. He's made one of those before, which was Fantastic Mr. Vox, and he's returning to that world, this time with an original story. It is set in a dystopian near future Japan. Uh, And it follows a young boy who goes in search of his dog after the entire species is banished to an island due to a dog fever outbreak. It's got an ensemble voice cast, like most of Wes Anderson's films. Everyone in it is famous. Uh, Includes Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, Greta Gerwig, Frances McDormand, Scarlett Johansson. I'm boring myself. I'm bored. 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 Bored of my own talking. 
Here is a clip of the dogs, all of whom are voiced by famous movie stars, discussing their favorite food. Okay, I got a question. What's your favorite food? A double portion of doggy chop from the can mixed into a bowl of broken puppy snaps with a vitamin crushed up into it. King's the spokes dog for that. He's the doggy chop dog. Yeah. Used to be. Was that your daily meal? Not always. My master was a school teacher. We weren't rich, you know. You? A center cut Kobe ribeye seared on the bone with salt and pepper. Wow. It was my birthday supper every year. Mine's hot sausage jacketory style. The snack vendor always saved me one on game days. Hmm. Duke? Uh, green tea ice cream. My master had a sweet tooth I probably inherited from her. <laughs> you heard the rumor, right, about doggy chop? Oh, Remind us again. Brand. What rumor? Oh, they folded. Oh, oh no. Mm. Donkey? Doggy chop folded? How about you, Chief? What was your favorite food? Me? Oh, I don't care. Garbage, trash, scraps of rubbish. I'm used to leftovers. Mm, yeah. Of course, I wasn't always astray. Wait, what'd you say? I said, of course, I wasn't always astray. Really? really? Tell us when. about that. Well. Well. <laughs> um, so... It's a very strange film. Yeah, I was. I think we had a similar reaction. A bit sort of nonplussed. Very by it. confused by it. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's stop motion just makes it even stranger because so much effort is in every frame, and it must have taken his like team of you know overworked British animators who he skyped every day or <laughs> so much time and effort to make this, and yet the plot is like so meandering. So it's simultaneously sort of like tossed off and cobbled together and meticulously made at the same time. Yeah, and the experience of watching it is very strange. I have no idea what he was really going for. I don't know why he made this <laughs> film. Like, why did he decide to do this? It's. I would love to know exactly what the inspirations were for it. I mean, I'm sure he's discussed all this on this promotional tour and stuff. But it's just a very difficult film to understand. Uh, why why he would do it the way he has. Yeah, I've got a theory about what they were sort of going for. Okay, which is always I think is always a bad thing when like reviewers play clairvoyant. It's like what the filmmaker was going for here. But I think the sort of Japanese thing was it was kind of like sort of being like a samurai movie but with dogs and uh, the main character's uh, Brian Cranston as chief is like a stray who doesn't have a master and he's it's like, like a ronin. He's like a ronin and the sort of trash island is like kind of feudal Japan thing and there's like a sort of corrupt dynasty. And he's got to, like, regain his honor. And it's all a bit like, you know, the Japanese idea of honor and loyalty transposed with dogs, which you think would sort of work. But it's just, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like this weird mix of, like, it's sort of a kid's movie in how flexible the world is. The logic of it is completely sort of changes from scene to scene. But at the same time, there's like long dialogue scenes. There's a lot of exposition weighing down stuff. I was wondering that when I was watching it, actually. I couldn't figure out if it was a kid's film or not. And I was kind of thinking that it is a kid's film and that therefore some of the flaws in it are more forgivable because if you start to think too much about the allegorical meaning of it or some kind of uh, analogy to the real human world, then some very odd things start to crop up. And the movie becomes a lot easier to digest if you're simply thinking of it in terms of, you know, a fun adventure film about a little boy looking for his dog, you know, but it, but it doesn't quite, it can't quite be that because there's too much other stuff in there. And it is, as you say, full of long dialogue sequences, you know. Absolutely. I think the movies that's most successful is just like the dogs and the kids sort of wandering about going from A to B, 
they've got like a little quest to complete and yeah. it was all you know that was the bit that was kind of most like a kids movie yeah and then yeah. but it's kind of placed in this larger kind of political context in a way where yeah it was completely nonplussed by it don't understand what he was going for um is the movie racist because i mean when when the trailer for it came out uh it did seem like there were a number of pitfalls that it would have to avoid and there is obviously something slightly off about just picking your sort of favorite culture and just you know it's like i love noodles i love samurai i love like all this stuff and just throwing it in there without like thinking too much about it and kind of using it as a prop for your quirkiness you know and i don't feel like the film like it's even it's actually even worse than it had to be there is it's got this kind of checklist thing of japanese culture which is that that it kind of utilizes and it also the way it treats language is very strange so it has this thing in the movie which is explained in uh, like a, a title at the beginning that they don't translate um sorry they don't have a subtitle for any of uh, the japanese in it and the dogs all speak english and all anytime you understand the Japanese, it's because there's a translator who's played by Francis McDormand in the movie, or you know there's a like a label on it, or it's other things like that. But the curious effect of it is to somehow make foreign or make more othering the people who are you know where the film is set, which yeah. is very strange. And it's like so the dogs are like the Westerners basically, and they're all played by Americans. But they're kind of the outsiders in the Japanese society because they've all been banished to this island. And then there's this weird like Holocaust allegory thing that the movie kind of leans into involving camps and poison gas, um, <laughs> which is, you know, impossible to to ignore, really. And that's very strange, uh, you know. And so it just starts to it all kind of falls apart. It's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like... Yeah. It just seems it just seems very insensitively and like ill considered. It just seems like he wasn't thinking about the the symbolism or how any of this stuff is going to come across. And like, there's a lot of scenes of just like angry Japanese guys yelling things that are untranslated into the screen. And it's like, is that really the way you should be treating this culture that you've decided to like adopt for your film because it sort of looks cute? Yeah, absolutely. It's also the I think it's partly sort of the Japanese acting style or like it's modeled off the sort of Japanese acting style of the 50s because I think this touchstones are like Kurosawa where it's that sort of Toshiro Mifune thing of like long, dense, growling and like, you know, yeah. very dramatic, very expressionist thing. Sort of melodramatic, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but when you have that, but with like models where the actual expressions on the characters don't vary that much and it's not subtitled... The effect is just like... It's close to a racist caricature. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I feel like, you know, he is much more interested in the dogs who are given a lot more nuance and I think just probably had much more expressive faces than the human characters. But and also it- they're all these... All the dogs are all these kinds of wry, grumbling, like, <laughs> guys from America, aren't they? They're like, hey, you know, what's going on? And, like, if you just have all your Japanese characters are kind of yelling and barking, it's, very, <laughs> that's, it's just off. Like, I don't think you should do that. Yeah, it is strange. I mean, to an extent... It kind of follows in the lineage of like the Wes Anderson thing, which is he's always kind of appropriating stuff. Like, you know, the life aquatic Steve Zissou is not made by a man who is interested in marine biology. It's a man who likes submarines and, you know, old-fashioned diving suits. Yeah. And, you know, the filmmakers he's acknowledged as big influences are like Kurosawa and Miyazaki. And they're both filmmakers, Japanese filmmakers, who sort of have been successful in taking sort of Western stories and, for lack of a better word, Japanifying? Yeah. Japanifying? <laughs> yeah. You know, in that... Stray Dog is like a sort of 1940s cop movie, but in Japan, but it's like his own thing. 
But I think it's definitely just the way the Japanese characters are situated in the story. And it's particularly, I think, like the sort of nail on the head is the nail in the head of the coffin of Wesley's <laughs> career is like the Greta Gerwig character who didn't really need to be in the film at all. No. And is like the sort of white savior. And it's like the fact that she ha- is the one who like intervenes and catalyzes the finale is like all the Japanese people, apart from one kid, are either okay with murdering all the dogs or are too <laughs> like servile and complacent to do anything about it and just, you know, yeah. are easily enslaved by a tyrannical mare. And it's just like, yeah, the optics of this are not good. <laughs> just, yeah, but like I think the comparison with Stray Dogs is Stray Dog is kind of interesting because that movie is clearly inspired by American cop films. But it is adapted into a Japanese context, which is, you know, distinctly Japanese. Yeah, absolutely. and it's in, and in, that's that's an interesting movie because it's about a cop who loses his gun, and in Japan, this is like a resigning matter, and you couldn't make an American cop movie with whereas like this. Like at the beginning of that movie, he's on the bus and someone steals his gun, and then he's like, "I'm going to resign. I'm so ashamed." And his and his boss is like, "Oh no, no, just find the gun." But you couldn't have an American cop movie style way because it'd be like, you know, all right, it's not that big of a deal. Just have another gun, you know. Yeah. And so it's all like the Japanese culture is really important to how that movie is presented. It's not like he just nicked a bunch of American culture and sort of like dressed it around a bunch of Japanese characters and was like, isn't it so funny how they do things over in the States? And whereas that element does is kind of present in Isle yeah, of Dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I fundamentally didn't get it. I didn't, didn't get what was up with it. And it's weird as well, but after Grand Prix Best Hotel, because that movie, a lot of people's appreciation of it was based in the way in which it is kind of set around the Holocaust in a way and touches on fascism and persecution and, and, and all of this stuff in Eastern Europe. Um, which seemed to be very carefully thought out and there was sort of think pieces written about it. And now you have to wonder, like, is he thinking about any of this stuff or is he just doing whatever seems like the most cute and adorable at the time? Yeah. I mean, I did, was amused by some of the dogs. I mean, like, I'm a sucker for any, like, talking, like, animal movie. There are some, animals, fun, there are some funny jokes. Animals there. doing stuff animals don't normally do. What if a dog was like a sort of right New Yorker? I mean, there's a certain amount of mileage in that. Yeah. And I, a few of the gags worked. But yeah, I just felt like it never got going. It was too piecemeal. The it felt like here's a very snooty thing to say, like the stop motion animation. It felt like it was made piece by piece, and that's <laughs> how the script felt like it was written, once and at a time, with no thought of what was going to happen next. I don't know. It just a bit thrown together. Yeah, I don't know. It's an odd misfire, I think. I wouldn't really recommend it. I didn't didn't like it's it. It's my it's my least favorite Wes. Got to be honest. After my most favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was on a real run, you know, but... Run over. Run over. Like a... Dog. dog. <laughs> it's a dog of a movie. Come on. There's a few more puns you get in here. It should be put down. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack. And telephone friends so you know where she's at. Right, that's enough. Now back to film chat. 120 BPM. This is a French movie directed by Robin Campolo, who previously made the film Eastern Boys, which I didn't see, which but I heard was great. And the and class as well. He was a he was a writer on the class. Then he directed it, but he co-wrote okay. it. Sorry. And it's written by him and a man called Philippe Manjot. Pretty French name. They're French, and it's based on their own experiences of being members of the Paris chapter of Act Up, which was a activist group. Uh, set up in the late 80s to sort of cajole the government into 
further action on the AIDS epidemic, which they thought they were being, uh, they thought the government were holding stuff back and they were just lobbying and act- and educating and generally being very, very cool and badass and very heroic. And the film is an ensemble piece about the members of the Paris chapter and a lot of it is about their actions and also them debating what is the best course of action and it's an interesting mix of like moderates and radicals in the group and it's a movie that mixes well it doesn't really mix the personal to political the political is personal the personal is political <laughs> as the movie kind of points out but the kind of spine of the film is a relationship between a hiv negative newcomer called nathan played by arnaud valo arnaud valo i'm gonna fuck up a lot of oh, no. oh, no. yeah arnaud valos Something a name like that, uh, becoming romantically involved with a passionate HIV positive veteran of the group called Sean, played by Nahul Perez Bicare, <laughs> or a name that could be like that. That sounds very authentic to me. And we both saw the London Film Festival at a lovely screening in the <laughs> at nine in the morning on a Saturday, and uh, I thought it was great. And the more I think about it, the more I'm impressed by one it. one of the movies of the festival. No doubt, was... no doubt about it. Yeah, and I think. I read this good point about one of the reasons why the movie is good. I forget who the writer is. I'm going to steal his point, but this is a professional film critic. Nailed it for me, but I'm going to just copy it now. Good. Which he said that a lot of LGBT movies that kind of make it in the mainstream are often quote-unquote gay versions of uh, stories you've seen before. Like Brobeck Mountain is like kind of star-crossed lovers and society is against them. And even the poster for Brobeck Mountain was modeled on the Titanic one. And what makes 120 BPM feels so fresh is like the whole process of a sort of left-wing organization the way it details that hasn't really been done before and it's like it feels so much its own thing purely by being so authentic to that process i know there's movies like pride and i'm sure there are other films that may be less famous but it really details the sort of attrition of it in a way that i've never seen in any movie yeah i, I think that a lot of films that are about activist groups reflect this assumption about uh on a sort of underlying level about how politics is conducted and usually activism is presented as like uh weird or somewhat like quirky or like the the preserve of hippies and weirdos and sort of ineffectual as well even when it's sympathetically portrayed it's basically seen as occurring on the fringes of politics and it's people who hold placards and you know they just don't really do anything and it's like i'm glad that they're out there trying to help but it's not really making any difference and this film is about a form of political activism which is quite radical. It's actually more radical than like most movies are. You know, would portray such things. They like break into pharmaceutical companies and uh, put like spray uh, spray paint the place, like put blood there. They like handcuff people and they break into schools to like distribute condoms that kind of thing. Um, but it is a it is a literally a matter of life and death for them, and it is very very concrete about what they are trying to get out of every single thing they do and that's one of the things that's so valuable about having all of these meeting scenes i mean it, it it's almost in danger of being a bit dry because they do spend a lot of time in this one like lecture theater talking to each other but it's very critical to see how much like uh specific sort of goals and things that they're trying to get out of every single decision they make and it's all it's all very very concrete and it's not just people being like this is an outrage we have to go and like you know ruin this meeting we have to go and attack this office it's like um they they, they want they want things and they target getting them and they sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't and sometimes they do things that other members of the group think are counterproductive and they have all these debates but it's just a it sort of makes you realize like uh how 
limited other kinds of portrayals of um, political activism are and how useful it, it can be to do and how like important it is and it's like if these people weren't doing this then there would be very important things for like the lgbt community that would not happen you know around aids yeah absolutely i also think it's a movie which is like obviously a period piece is set in the early 90s but there's not like a shred of like hindsight to like the way it's shot or like there's no you have no idea how successful their actions are in the long term yeah and it does it resists the urge to like have any like facts at the end and it just feels uh, very, this is very wanky to say, but very present. The whole kind of life and death thing, it's got kind of beauty of this energy that really powers you through the sort of two and a half running time, which I didn't really notice. Um, yeah, it's a long movie. It's a long movie, but it's just like got this kind of real energy to it, which is uh, kind of infectious. I don't know. Well, it's very, it just feels very vital. I mean, it's obviously a very movie that's very personal to the director. And it's about a incredibly important topic and it takes it very seriously. But the movie itself is not too serious, you know. And the collection, I think the ensemble stuff is done extremely well. It is partly a depiction of how such kinds of groups work. Um, but it's also, I think they do a good job of balancing basically the various different perspectives that you need in order to portray the, the, the kinds of conflicts that will go on inside these types of groups. Uh, but also crafting very rounded characters uh, there's a lot of them. It's quite a big cast, but they all feel like very three-dimensional. And it's very cleverly done the way that it draws out these relationships gradually. And it starts with this huge group of people and you start to learn who they all are. And then it lasers in on one or two of them as the movie heads towards its conclusion in a way that's extremely effective. Yeah. The performances are extremely good as well. All very naturalistic and yeah, very convincing. Yeah. Another thing I liked about the movie, a lot of explicit sex scenes. Which there's some great there's some, some great sex in some it some great yeah. sex scenes and you know it's one of the things about Brobat Mountain you never see anything you see Anne Hathaway's tits <laughs> where's see, Heath Ledger's dick where's Heath Ledger's dick as Jonah Hill once described in a knocked up deleted scene which I think really nailed the um, really nailed the head on the coffin real the head on the coffin of that movie's opinion in my <laughs> brain uh, but um, yeah like the sex scenes are you know sort of admirably explicit but they also they all serve a dramatic purpose and the sex life of someone with HIV who's HIV positive in a time where the meds weren't available is something that's kind of interesting and like obviously key to uh, you know it's a bunch of young people you know an STI is going to kill them all that stuff you know it's important to have those scenes and like yeah, one of those standout yeah. scenes is like the sort of possibly I thought Moonlight I thought it, it, it done the best handjob scene but 120 BPM it's edged out the handjob scene from Moonlight to me. I, I agree. The, ha- the handjob scene in, in 120 BPM is an all-timer. It's an all-timer. Here's my top three favorite sex scenes of all time. The handjob scene in 120 BPM, the puppet fucking in Anomalisa, then the handjob scene in Moonlight. Can't, can't disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. so uh, I, I... Well, both of us highly recommend. Absolutely. It's one of my films of the year. Going to see this movie. It's excellent. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo She's the queen but she wants to be in radio So she starts a podcast with her friends And the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end But now, a film I have a lot to say on I mean, <laughs> you thought I had some things to discuss when discussing these two movies But I've really got a lot to say about I Kill Giants I Kill Giants I Kill Giants It is directed by Anders Walter It's his feature film debut He previously won an Academy Award for a short film or was nominated for one. I haven't really researched this. 
Doesn't, doesn't matter. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And it's written by a gentleman called Joe Kelly based on a graphic novel of the same name, which he also writes. And the plot is that uh, Barbara is a young sort of teenage girl and she's obsessed with killing giants in a sort of weird coastal town in America. And she has her sort of family's a bit worried about her. She only talks about killing giants and demons and stuff. It's all a bit strange. Nerd. What a nerd. Uh, she's a bit ostracized at school. There's a team of bullies who just hate her for some reason. Not really sure why. Because she's a nerd. Because she's a nerd. And a new girl who's just moved from Britain sort of befriends her. And she also has a child psychiatrist character played by Zoe Saldana who tries to figure out what's going on with Barbara. Is the fantasy real? Is it reflecting her reality? What's going on? What what's going, going on with this young what's woman? Going on? Here's a clip. We're going to get in trouble. We're going to save this town. should have taken the second bait. Something else must have grabbed his attention. There is no way this wouldn't work. We have to go back. We'll say we got locked out by accident. Hold on. You need to understand what we're dealing with. Giant salt reel. Then why are you sweating? Well, it's pretty exciting for us to see this, right? We saw like an actual critic screening. Yeah, and we saw it in like some Warner Brothers building in Soho. And it all felt very cool. I don't know if you saw, but like Bradshaw was like... I didn't see Bradshaw. Bradders was there. P. Brads was in there. P. Brads was in there. I did not. did not lay my... I don't know. You made I, a very swift exit at the end. I'm glad you didn't mention it to me. I wouldn't be able to concentrate on the film. I would have been... My heart would have been palpitating knowing that P. Brads is so close by. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, I didn't know anything about this movie. There's something kind of fun about a movie starting in a forest, and I have no idea if it's set in 1600, the modern day, <laughs> in a fantasy planet, or what it's going to be. And as I started to establish itself, and I realized it was about this like uh, slightly dorky girl who's into Dungeons and Dragons and imagining giants and whatnot, um, I was predisposed to enjoy it. I, I'm a sucker for movies about like sad but plucky children working through their shit, and especially with <laughs> slightly fantastical elements. You know, Son of Rambo kind of fulfills that. Pan's Labyrinth, you know, uh, The Fall. All these movies really really draw me in, make me cry. So I was ultimately a bit disappointed that this film turned out to be a bit bad because I felt like it all had the elements to, you know, for me to like it, but it it is very clumsily put together. Yeah, It feels like it's a bit of a dud. It's like clumsily written, not particularly well directed and has an idea, like it's exceeding its budget a lot. Reach exceeds its grasp monetarily speaking and it ends up feeling like the sort of movie where they will invite some random podcasters and bloggers to see it and you know in the hopes of like generating some buzz because um despite having a lot of like famous people in the cast yeah most especially the first arounds when they invite us to go exactly watch it. exactly yeah because you think that a the normal kind of marketing campaign will not get the punters in um because it's both not a very terribly easy film to market and also not that good a movie so yeah, I think the thing that sort of made it all not work was the sort of lack of a clear perspective of what the movie... It's not quite from Barbara's perspective, and it's not quite from a sort of all-seeing narrator's perspective. It's somewhere in the middle, and you don't know... Movies like The Fall or Pan's Labyrinth kind of make it clear, or like delineate it in a way which I think uh, means that, unlike this movie, you're not constantly trying to figure out what's a metaphor or not. And yeah. trying to decode the film. And yeah, I think that was a big barrier in me enjoying it. It's like, are there giants? Are there not? And the sort of revelation of what the, it is it is or isn't 
isn't that revealing it's i think the basic the basic problem for me is that movies like those other movies the the three that i reference those all have a strong sense of wonder to them and a real you know they uh invest in that like childlike sense of a world that you don't understand like when you're a kid you don't know what the rules of the world are and as far as you're concerned anything could fucking happen at any time and maybe you know magic is real and all this like and all this kinds of thing and those movies really embrace that perspective and you know invest in it and this movie ends up not doing that and the world of the movie is smaller when the film ends than when it began and that's not that's the exact opposite way that it should go you know i felt like the film ends up shutting down whatever you were supposed to invest in it and being like oh no 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 you know don't be silly and i I just found that very irritating don't do that (laughs) (laughs) Don't, don't do that to me I I am a child at heart. I want to I want to you know exult in all that stuff. But yeah. nah. wow. we just killed this film's chances at the box office. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because it does have a very recognizable cast. I haven't seen any advertising for it. Do you feel like they just they you know, they're like oh, this one didn't work out? Never mind. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Get a couple of bloggers in. Maybe they'll talk about <laughs> it. Otherwise, never mind. Yeah, well, it's, it's very similar to a Monster Calls. I don't think that did particularly good business, and that was really well critically received. So that's not going to work out. It was, you know, much bigger budget. So maybe they're like, shit, we got like a less good version of that. So maybe they just cut the losses. It's hard to know what studios do these days. You know, they just dump it on Netflix. Why didn't they? they do why that. didn't they sell it to Netflix? Not even Netflix wanted not it. Even, not even Netflix. <laughs> not by any old shit. <laughs> by anything. Oh well. Oh well. Never mind. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> When Zach Braff heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? Film Chat. When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? Film Chat. And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? Film Chat. When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so you've heard three reviews, and we've just got time for loads more of them. So Danny has seen another couple of films. These are both movies that you watched at the London Film Festival, is that correct? Yep. And how long should we give you to discuss them? 30 seconds. Well, that's each. very short, isn't it? Do you, is that really all you want? 40, 45. All right, 30 <laughs> seconds. Well, this is, so it's going to be proper countdown hours, like real um, high-octane action. Okay. Do we even? Go, is this, does that include introducing and explaining the films and everything? Yes. Okay, all right. So one minute for two. One minute for two movies. movies. Thirty second, you're yeah, a quackson. Okay, cool. The, yeah. no. Okay, so one destructs new film by Todd Haynes, starring Julianne Moore. It's based on this book by the guy who wrote Hugo. I think it's Brian Selznick, and it's like this sort of story about a kid who goes deaf and travels to New York in the '70s to find his mum and dad. I oh, know his dad. And it's just all over the place. There's quite an interesting thing about the flashbacks they're done in a silent movie style. But I really don't think it kind of hung together. And it's basically one of those movies where the plot could be resolved if all the characters just spoke to each other for two minutes at the start. It's all a bit coincidences and missing people by a second. 
It just wasn't it was shit. Anyway, Thoroughbreds <laughs> is this new film with <laughs> Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy. It's sort of sort of chamber piece. It's got Anton Yelchin's last performance in it about this sort of sociopath who befriends another woman who hates her dad and then like plots to kill the stepdad. Stepdad, sorry. But he just didn't seem that bad to me. So <laughs> I, I, just not, I didn't buy into the premise at all. And I couldn't relate to either of the characters because they're just psychopaths. So I thought it was like trying to be a sort of late 90s heavens thing, but it wasn't funny or dark enough. So <laughs> there we go. That was beautiful. You did a great job. <laughs> I could, you know, I should, they should bring in just a minute or something. Do you think we should do all of our... Actually, maybe the podcast should be like 10 minutes in total and we should just do everything like this. Yeah. Well, that's, the, you know, people like Vines, you know, they'll switch off a YouTube video for 10 seconds so it doesn't hook them, so... Well, we should put right. this up on our channel. You know, we've got all these like 13-minute reviews of The Wailing or whatnot. We should have like 30-second review <laughs> of Thoroughbreds. Okay, well, I was underwhelmed by both. Don't see them. Or do if you want. I don't care. Thanks. I don't fucking care. All right, listeners, a bit of personal news about my life. I have an essay deadline coming up at the end of this month, and I'm horribly underprepared for it, and it's freaking me out. So I think we will need to take <laughs> a little bit of time off of film chat. So you have now three weeks. You write long. You know, normally, when we ask for correspondence, you probably only write in a little note. You, know, you just drop us a line. Uh, I thought this about this film. Have you seen this trailer? Whatever. Now you have enough time to produce long essays detailing everything that you like and dislike about us and we will return in may and hopefully there are not any interesting movies coming i know avengers infinity war is coming out in that time oh, no oh no <laughs> i wanted to review that the day after it came out uh but other than that is there anything major that's on the horizon i don't know we'll probably have to do another reviews bonanza um uh, ne- seconds. the next we're time we appear what? yeah well we've established that we can yeah. do reviewing Maybe very quick quick 20 seconds why not why not why not let's be ambitious let's not rest on our laurels so uh so i'll see you then thank you all for listening i apologize that i'm retreating with my tail between my legs to my study to sort of cry over my empty word documents maybe danny can do some weird things alone maybe i can do some weird things alone (laughs) (laughs) actually yeah it's not gonna be a full hiatus danny will be doing some weird things alone so so don't worry about it there'll be some there'll be some content when danny does weird things alone Okay, well, look forward to that. <laughs> I'll just figure out what that means. <laughs> just do that. Great. Until then. See you then. Bye. Bye. Hey, what's up? Nothing. I couldn't sleep. Hey, I haven't either. What are you watching? I'm fucking broke back now. It's a good movie. <laughs> not to me, it's not. Why? Who the fuck does Ang Lee think he is, man? I mean, you make a supposedly, you know, pro-gay movie, and you don't show one guy getting a Hummer the whole movie, man. You know? What am I, fucking six years old? I can't see a guy getting sucked off by another guy? I'm not a fucking kid. I can take it, Aang. I'm a realist, man. I like to see real shit going down. I see two gay guys in a tent in Brokeback Mountain, I want to see a fucking 69. I want to see an asshole eating out. You're telling me that shit doesn't go down? Gyllenhaal's mouth is practically watering the whole movie. Shove something in there, Eve. And don't even fucking bring up the movie Master and Commander. You're telling me those guys weren't all taking it from each other? Peter Weir doesn't have the fucking balls to show a bunch of guys sucking each other off on a boat. I can see Bruce Willis's dick swinging to and fro in Color of Night, but I can't see Jake Gyllenhaal taking a mouthful from Heath Ledger? What the fuck? What kind of country do we live in? Fucking Randy Quaid's sitting there, obviously a fembot. He's not even fucking even perusing the idea of sucking someone's dick. I don't want the veil over my fucking eyes anymore. 
And I don't want Ang Lee telling me what's sexy and what's not. I'm kinda with you on this. I've seen enough tits in movies. I sit here watching tits all day. I don't need to see fucking Anne Hathaway's tits. I need to see Jake Gyllenhaal on all fours getting a fucking mouthful of ledger. That's all I'm trying to say. And Brokeback Mountain, gay rights movie of the year? That fucking movie was made by like fucking homophobes in my mind. It's like they're ashamed to show a guy sucking another guy off. That's the fucking strongest point you can make for the gay movement. It's fine. Dudes are sucking each other off on mountains. I fucking get it. I dig it, kind of. If we went to a baseball game, and right as the guy was about to hit the ball, they cut away, would you be happy? No, I want to see a fucking home run. I want to see Jake Gyllenhaal on all fours getting a salad toss by Heath Ledger. I just want to see it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.